Okay, and our anchor leg here is Dr. Doug Bruce, who's at Yale University. Um, we kept him for the anchor leg because we figured there's going to be a lot of questions about opioids. And uh, what what's makes this talk especially worthwhile is not only does Doug have a boatload of experience in dealing with this issue over years. Um, at the end of the lecture, there's, there's about three or four slides that are just practical things that we can do. So it's worth hanging on. A lot of you have planes to catch or places to go, beat the traffic, but this is worth hanging around for. So Doug, welcome. Good afternoon, the faithful and few. All right, well, we're going to make this exciting. I believe in excitement. I work with drug users, so my life is always very exciting. I know where to buy heroin in most places in different parts of the world, so if you're ever in need, let me know. Um, so uh, before we start, I want to tell you a brief story to frame this conversation. I was once meeting with a basic scientist at Yale many years ago, and as older faculty were, are wont to do, they want to find a way to connect to junior people, and so he wanted to tell me about the story about when he was taking care of a substance user in the hospital, and this is when he was a med student in New York City. And so he told me the story about this patient, Mr. Davis, who had a long history of heroin use, was in recovery, had pneumonia, and being a dutiful medical student, he went through the social history, right? We've all had to do that. We've all painfully watched people go through that. And so he was very dutiful, and he asked Mr. Davis, Mr. Davis, what do you do for a living? Mr. Davis said, I play the trumpet. And this dutiful student at the time said, well, no, wait, really, I mean, really? How do, how do you make a living? You know, how do you pay your bills? I play the trumpet. No, no, I mean, like, people don't actually make a living playing the trumpet. How do you make a living? I play the trumpet. So this persisted for some period of time. And uh, for those of you who know anything about the history of jazz, Mr. Davis was Miles Davis, um, to which this basic scientist also remarked that this was the reason, this was the day he realized he should do basic science and not work with human beings. Um, so, but I want to remind you that some of the greatest jazz musicians, uh, John Coltrane, Miles Davis, Billie Holiday, there's a methadone clinic in New York City named after Billie Holiday, were drug addicts. And so something that we need to keep in mind is that people who use drugs are people too, and I know that you're, uh, I've never met anyone that didn't cringe when the substance user came to clinic. But this is a very particular population that needs our help. So I have no uh, financial disclosures. Um, the slide there also shows a methadone clinic in Tanzania. Heroin is a global problem. Um, Mike had mentioned earlier today that there are 63,632 people died of overdose in 2016. That's one person dies every 8.28 minutes, which means in the time of this talk, three people have died of drug overdose. We're going to talk about opioids, as the talk uh, title mentions. And this is your first question. According to CDC, I told you, how many people died? Did I already tell you the answer to this? Did you remember it?
So most of you listened when I told you the answer. So uh, over 42,000 people died of prescription opioid use. So 63,000 people died, 63,632. But most of those are prescription opioids. And um, as you can see, prescription opioids are the thing that is absolutely epidemic in this country. I was complaining to the FDA, uh, actually to the DEA years ago about opioids in the Connecticut region and somebody from DEA headquarters just completely interrupted me and said, you have absolutely no idea. We don't care about Connecticut. You're a small state. No, she didn't say that. But what she said is that we have containers, shipping containers coming into Florida with these pills. Right? So a lot of the pills that are circulating as prescription opioids, not all of them come out of your office. Many of them were manufactured illicitly. There are even heroin tablets that are for sale on the streets. Uh, and something that you need to be wary of is who is the main target for prescription opioids? Right? Middle school students. So when pills are getting diverted, the target is not adults. The target is to create the next generation of substance users. Drug addiction and heroin addiction is a global problem. You can see here that HIV and uh, opioid use disorders are all over the world. I had an earlier slide showing that there's even methadone clinics that we have developed in Tanzania. Methadone is available in Kenya, in South Africa, on the west coast of Africa. There's a methadone clinic in Kabul, Afghanistan. Right, why is that? Heroin is a global problem, not just an American issue. And wherever there is heroin, there tends to be injection. And where there's injection, there's bloodborne disease transmission. So I'm going to briefly talk about addiction. And this is very, very important because if you're going to take care of someone who has a substance use disorder, you need to have a basic idea of why people do drugs. Because uh, when you have that conversation, the real conversation is, why are you doing drugs? Right? No one needs to hear, just say no or don't do drugs. Right? Most substance users have figured out that starting down the dark path of drug addiction was not wise. Right? They don't need to be told that. But if we're going to help them, we need to know why. So when I say that someone is engaging, they have a substance use disorder or an addiction, they're engaging in compulsive behavior. And that behavior is universally reinforcing. Right? People do things because they feel good. And ultimately, there's a loss of control. Right? So if a substance user has lost control, the cure is not to say, stop. Right? Because if you can stop, then by definition, you're not addicted. So why do people take drugs? And there are basically two reasons, to feel good or to feel better. Now, in my biased cohort, most of my patients are trying to feel better. In our clinic system, most of the women, for example, are victims of violence, and they're using drugs as ways to make themselves completely numb. And we'll talk a lot about in our clinics about patients wanting to numb their brains, not wanting to re-experience or feel trauma uh, or the feelings associated with trauma. So the really question is, well, lots of people do drugs, right? Uh, and why do some people become addicted? And Michael Brown, who, uh, and Joseph Goldstein, who are involved and got a Nobel Prize for discovering cholesterol, uh, Michael Brown once proposed this relative to other biologic mechanisms, but I thought this was really a great summary of really all diseases, right? So uh, people become addicted to drugs because they have either a strong genetic predisposition with some kind of environmental insult or a very strong environmental insult with some genetic predisposition. So 
uh, everything in the world's on this continuum. So you could say, oh, well, Down syndrome, trisomy 21 is purely genetic. And I would say, no, it's not, right? It's also related to maternal age. So lots of things have this dual both what's happening in your environment and what's happening genetically. You could be predisposed to be an alcoholic, but if you've never experienced alcohol, you cannot become an alcoholic, right? For my patients, they tend to have a genetic predisposition, but then they have an environmental insult. Sexual assault, violence, neglect, those types of things that get people to begin using drugs. A big issue in the Northeast where unemployment is a big issue is boredom. They have absolutely not, nothing to do. When you're bored, you're out of work, you feel hopeless, you want to forget feeling hopeless, and you move to substances. So what's the big deal about drugs? Well, the big deal about addiction to these substances is that they assert the normal mechanisms in the brain that have to do with very primal instincts and motivational priorities. So the very same switch system in the brain that told you all that it was a really good idea biologically to eat lunch, or the really primal thing that, you know, we, we've talked a lot about sex today because of our topics today, right? The same neurobiological reward around sex and what makes an orgasm great, that same neurobiological reward is what heroin does in the brain. So when you talk to heroin users, they will compare the feelings that they get to, it's the best orgasm that I've ever had in my life, right? So uh, when you're going to someone and telling them, wow, this is really bad for you, you're saying to someone, the thing that you've experienced that feels the greatest is bad. And that's a hard sell. I remember talking to an HIV-infected woman who is in her late 50s now, but when she was 17, she first used heroin in New York City. And her description of that experience was, I realized I wanted to do this for the rest of my life. That was her experience. So in the setting of an earlier opioid crisis, which was in the 1950s, uh, Dole and Nicewander and Mary Jean Creek were involved in trying to find a cure for that. Uh, but before we talk about the cure, this is uh, a paper from 1966, so it gives you some context. And this looks at the life of a heroin user. And on the far left, you see uh, in the morning, there are little tick marks. This is uh, an individual early in addiction using heroin, and that person's feeling high, feeling euphoria. Over time, you develop tolerance, dependence, and now it's all about, I feel miserable, I'm using to try and get out of withdrawal. And then what happens, okay, I want to feel that euphoria again, I want to numb my brain, I want to forget the horrors of my life, I now use too much, I overdose. Now this is different in our environment now because a lot of the overdoses happening concurrently are because the opioids are stronger. So fentanyl is 100 times stronger than heroin. Carfentanil, which is a new synthetic, is 100 times stronger than that. In Connecticut, the DEA busted a group that had a briefcase full of carfentanil. There was enough in that to overdose every citizen of Connecticut six times. So it's 3.4 million times six in one briefcase. So these things are very potent. So as we've seen in Indiana recently, as we see in Tanzania, where 71% of women who inject drugs in Dar es Salaam are HIV antibody positive, HIV continues to track with uh, injectors. And this is from David Metzner's work from a very long time ago now, in 1993, that just looked at two cohorts, one out of treatment, one receiving methadone, 
following them forward in time. And you see that there's a huge difference in the individuals that become HIV infected. 22% uh, of those out of treatment acquired the virus and 3.5% on methadone. So why isn't it zero? Is that a failure of methadone? Well, no, this is the 1990s. People are injecting cocaine. People have since, except for some of the old timers, have given up injecting cocaine because smoking crack is much more efficient than injecting cocaine. And uh, also people engage in risky sexual behaviors. So that's why it's not zero. So when we talk about medication-assisted treatment, we talk about treating opioid use disorders. Right? We have several med medications. Buprenorphine and methadone are two medications. And they have been shown in multiple studies in multiple places in the world that you can reduce injection-related HIV risk behavior, decrease psychosocial and medical morbidity, increase access to HIV therapy, improve overall health, and keep people out of prison. If we're going to look at this uh, from imaging on the top is an MRI, and then what we have are PET scans going down. Now, the PET scan here is binding the mu opioid receptor. And if you see the BUP00 milligrams, that's the brain with no opioids in it. And you can see that there's a, a red dot there in the middle. That's the nucleus accumbens. That's the part of the brain that lights up when people have an orgasm and it lights up when people do heroin, right? Now, when you give buprenorphine, which is a high binding affinity, as I will tell my patients, we're filling up the parking lot in your brain with opioids so that if you use heroin, there are no parking spaces. So you can see at two milligrams, you're occupying about 50% of receptor occupancy. When you get up to 16 milligrams, depending on the patient, you're over the 75% receptor occupancy, which means that a person who uses heroin and is on up to 16 milligrams of buprenorphine, that person is not going to experience euphoria. So my second question for all of you today is, how many patients do you treat with buprenorphine for an opioid use disorder? I don't have a waiver and so can't treat anyone. I have a waiver, but don't do it yet. 0 to 10, 11 to 20, 21 to 30, 31 to 100, or over 100. Wow. So no one does opiates here? Is, is that something in Atlanta? No one does drugs? Uh, so I know people do crack, right? Everyone does. When I, when I worked at Parkland in Dallas, we used to say crack is king. Um, but none of your patients uh, take opioids, and no one here prescribes opioids, right? All right? So I've always said that if, if you prescribe any opioid, if you can create a problem, you should have the skill set to solve the problem you've created. So if you are prescribing opioids, you should consider being able to prescribe Suboxone, which is a treatment for an opioid use disorder. It's naive to think that all of the patients for whom you prescribe opioids take their medication exactly as you prescribed. Right. So if you give a patient methadone, that's the letter M, uh, the goal of methadone is to help people feel normal. If the person uses the little H there as heroin, they will not experience euphoria. The goal of both methadone and buprenorphine treatment is not to substitute. Okay, I want to say that again. It's not substituting one addiction for another. Right? Just like giving Prozac to someone with depression is not doing some kind of serotonin substitution dependency thing. Right? It's, it's the treatment of a disorder. Right? Just like we would say, oh, we shouldn't do PrEP because doesn't that encourage risky behavior? Right? 
We're not going to say, oh, well, don't do methadone. It encourages risky behavior. Or don't do this because of, of some reason like that. The goal of methadone is not to cause euphoria. You should not know who's on methadone or buprenorphine if it is dosed correctly. Clinics where you see people nodding out or, you know, if you've ever been in the, to Harlem to some of the clinics there, right, those individuals who are nodding out are doing other drugs, right? They're eating Xanax, they're we're up all night smoking crack, there's something else going on. Appropriately medicated and appropriately dispensed opioids do not cause nodding. So methadone in this country can only be dispensed through an opioid treatment program. It is an efficacious medication. Methadone has superior retention to any other treatment for an opioid use disorder. So it's really, really important. So when, when I was working to create methadone programs in East Africa, we used methadone. One reason is it was 50 bucks a year. It's cheap, it has high efficacy, and it has the best retention. So we were going for the best bang for our buck. Buprenorphine can be used in an office-based setting. Now in the United States, a physician, a nurse practitioner, and a PA can all be licensed to treat with Suboxone or Buprenorphine. Naltrexone is office-based and also efficacious. Its retention is much less with people um, relative to methadone and Buprenorphine. There was new data presented last week at Croy. Uh, Sandy Springer and her group looked at uh, HIV-infected prisoners who were released back to the community and were started on a depot formulation of naltrexone. Those individuals did very well, actually, in maintaining their sobriety upon release. But maintaining sobriety upon release is very different than, I just used heroin yesterday, I'm transitioning over. If you've been in prison for a while, uh, you've had a time for things to change and your tolerance to adjust as well. What happens if people walk off of a methadone clinic? So this is a little more recent data here. This is from 1991. This shows you that when people walk off methadone maintenance, in one year, 82% of people are back to injecting drugs. So what's the point there? Well, the point is that retention is really, really important. Right? We want our patients to benefit in the long term from the health benefits associated with treating an opioid use disorder. And that's really, really important. All right, we've talked about hepatitis C treatment. We want those individuals to successfully complete hepatitis C treatment. We want them to cease injection-related risks, and we want them to maintain the health benefits and not get reinfected. Right? For our individuals who are using opioids, you know, before the Department of Public Health prevented me from doing this, we were giving HIV therapy with methadone uh, in our methadone clinic system to help individuals who are struggling with HIV adherence. The Department of Public Health felt that, that made too much sense, I guess, to help people with that. And so they banned us from doing that. But while we were allowed to do it, it was quite helpful. So the next several slides are going to be best practices and treatment, and then some very practical things that you can consider doing in your own practice. When we think of the best practices of treatment for people with an opioid use disorder globally, we want to make sure that there's what we call a low threshold and rapid access and appropriately dosed treatment. So low threshold, now these principles are the same for HIV care, TB care, hep C care, any kind of treatment. If you want to make a difference that's scalable and a public health intervention, it should be low threshold. What does that mean? It means it's easy to get it, right? If you get an HIV test today and it takes you six weeks, 1,000 miles, and $50,000 in medicine to get there, that's very high threshold. There's no way anyone can achieve that. So what we want to do for substance users is we want to make it very easy to access. 
So in our clinic system, you can walk in, get screened, and get started on treatment the day that you come in. And that's really important if we're going to then address the person's HIV and hepatitis C and mental illness. So that's low threshold, it's easy to get to. Rapid access, you made it in, what do you need? Let's give it to you. But what's key in any intervention is that the medication should be dosed correctly. We always believe that there should be a culturally appropriate counseling uh, for heroin or any other opioid use disorder that could be as simple as NA, which is Narcotics Anonymous, or it can be more complex, like cognitive behavioral therapy, or for people with personality disorders like borderline personality disorder, things like dialectical behavioral therapy or DBT. I believe very strongly that we should be treating the medical issues associated with addiction, and so certainly in systems in the United States, that's HIV, hepatitis C. Uh, it's already been mentioned earlier today on just the prevalence of hepatitis C among younger individuals. Our current epidemic in our clinic system is among young people from suburbia who began using drugs largely with oxycontin or oxycodone, then transitioned to heroin because it was cheaper, then transitioned to injection, had no idea about syringe exchange, where to find clean syringes, and acquired hepatitis C. And then globally, uh, you know, there are two billion people in the world infected with tuberculosis, and so in the work that we've done internationally, we've had to integrate tuberculosis treatment within the context of methadone maintenance. And that's been very important. The TB rates in the methadone clinic system in Dar es Salaam, for example, uh, national TB rates in Tanzania are less than 200 per 100,000. But in the methadone clinic system, it's almost 5,000, which is, uh, it's 8,000 when you look at the mines in South Africa, so very high TB rates. So when we think about people with HIV and the substance use disorder, it's obvious to say that they have higher morbidity and mortality than the general population, and then also others with uh, HIV. And unfortunately, we know that people are still discriminated against uh, if they're substance users. They're the individuals that are less likely to get HIV care, Hep C care. When I was looking at trying to get TB treatment for this population as well, I was really shocked that large organizations really felt that drug users should not be treated for tuberculosis because they could not adhere to the treatment. And I, I, had, I couldn't believe the conversation I was having. So we're going to send them out to infect other people? Why are we not treating them? Right. Adherence is very possible even in the setting of ongoing substance use, right? So we do know that in the past people were denied access to care. Um, but uh, Evan Woods and his group in British Columbia showed something that I think is very important for us to take into consideration. Here's a cohort of almost 1,200 ART-naive patients uh, followed from the initiation of ART. And resistance was found in one out of four of the cohorts and 25% in the first 30 months. But there was no difference in resistance between people who injected drugs and people who did not inject drugs. So you know, we often think of, oh, people who inject drugs, they're not going to be adherent. They're going to do poorly. And we should avoid treating them. That's simply not the case, right? In our clinical environment, we're treating people who are actively using. We treat people who are actively drinking. I was in India for CDC in November and was really amazed to see in the context of a buprenorphine maintenance program that they had directly observed therapy with decladosphere and sopospuvir to treat hepatitis C. And that treatment regimen for that entire care was $120. So they were looking to treat everyone in Northeast India who had he hepatitis C through their opioid maintenance programs. Uh, 
In Tanzania, as I mentioned, there's adherence support for people with HIV and TB. They've been dosing medications with methadone. Methadone is an amazing adherence support. Buprenorphine is amazing to help with adherence support. We have what we call a voucher system in our environment. Vouchers are a little piece of paper that I made up, and we have these little fancy embossers that we uh, smash on the paper, because otherwise, my patients would go Xerox them ad nauseum and start selling their vouchers on the street. Um, I have very creative patients. Um, some people I run into, I ran into one guy in our lobby once, and he stood next to me, he's like, hey, I'm really tight with Dr. Bruce. I said, really? I'm really tight with him too. I know him really well. He's like, yeah, we go way back. I was like, okay, that's great. So I say that to say, uh, my patients will lie, steal, and do whatever is necessary to achieve an outcome. Maybe your patients aren't like that. Right? But I found that uh, my patients have taught me really well how to, um, I don't want to say manipulate, but maybe I'll say support in a structured way their adherence to treatment. And so we use these buprenorphine vouchers, so they will come in, see a buprenorphine prescriber monthly, uh, and, but they may have vouchers that tie them to weekly appointments. That appointment could be with a nutritionist, it could be with uh, an adherence nurse, it could be with the substance abuse counselor or a mental health clinician. And basically what it is, is you get this one piece of paper, you go to the pharmacy, you exchange your piece of paper for a week's supply of your medication, and that carries you to your next appointment. But because it's a voucher, I gave the prescription to the pharmacy already. Anybody on the team can provide vouchers. Vouchers are not prescriptions. And so it's really your permission slip. It allows you to get out of class, go to the bathroom, and not get in trouble with the principal. But it allows us to guide therapy, and it allows us to improve adherence to many of the things that we need our patients to do. So some very practical next steps. So it is recommended in primary care settings, and particularly in HIV clinical settings, to screen patients for substance use disorders. The two standardized questions that I put there I didn't make up. They actually were studied in a primary care environment. We use them in our environment, so we have HIV and addiction systems, but the health center is predominantly, it's a federally qualified healthcare center, it takes care of 35,000 patients, and so predominantly is a primary care environment. And so we screen people with two questions. How many times in the past year have you had five or more standard drinks in a day? And how many times in the past year have you used an illegal drug or a prescription medication for non-medical reasons? Right. Now, what is the single greatest reason that people don't want to ask these questions? Right? they don't want to deal with the answers, right? Don't ask, don't tell, right? We just don't want to, I don't want to know, because then I have to do something about it. But it's very important that we do, we ask these questions, because these things can impinge upon adherence and can cause other comorbid disorders. I also work with people who have hepatitis C and have liver disease, and one of the most common things I see when patients are sent to me with an increase in their transaminases is, wow, is this their hep C? Or maybe they have NASH. And I've lost count of the number of times that actually they have alcoholic steatohepatitis, but no one thought to ask about alcohol. 
other things that we should be doing for people who use drugs? Well, we should obviously realize that people who use drugs can take medications and should be eligible for comprehensive care. Right? There is no huge exclusionary criteria in our system. My big issue is can you take your medications? If you can take your medications, we'll treat you. Right? If you can't take your medications, we're gonna say, how can we help create an adherent support for you to help you succeed in taking your medications? What are the barriers to adherence and how can we overcome them? If you prescribe any opioid or benzodiazepine for any human being, you should be prescribing naloxone and you should consider becoming a buprenorphine provider. There is actually a liability risk in prescribing an opioid and not prescribing naloxone. I'll say that again, there's a liability risk. If you are prescribing an opioid and that person dies and you never counseled nor prescribed naloxone for that person, you could be considered liable. Why? Because it is the standard of care to provide naloxone to individuals on opioids because of the risk of overdose. So if you don't take anything else away today, take away prescribed naloxone. Also, if you're prescribing opioids, right, that is potentially creating problems, you should be a prescriber of buprenorphine, which is a potential solution. And then lastly, uh, you should be, there are guidelines uh, for the treatment of chronic pain. I had a slide about that, but I don't know where it went. Um, but there was a pain guideline that uh, we published this past September. It is free, open source, it is in CID. The actual, it was published in the journal is about, I don't know, a couple pages, and it's just the main recommendations. If you go online, there are about 85 pages. This is the most painful thing I've ever written in my life, was a guideline on pain. There are about 85 pages, and it goes through everything you've ever needed to know about how to treat somebody with non-cancer pain who has HIV. It has sections on urine drug screening, interpreting screening. It has sections on uh, what do I do? I think my patient has a drug use disorder. What are the true, what is the actual data on opioids for prescribing among people with HIV who have non-malignant pain? What is the real data for people with peripheral neuropathy, which should be the first line medication? It's an exhaustive resource. We encourage everyone to take a look at it. The whole goal of that document is to be usable and workable. Again, there's a nice summary table of what the actual recommendations are, but if you want to get into the weeds, it's a free resource online that can help you sort that out. In the 30 minutes that I had to try and tell you everything there is to know about opioids, I didn't start in the 1800s with Bayer's creation of heroin, but I've tried to give you a, an overview of the importance of opioid use disorders and its treatment. I put my email address up there because invariably there may be questions about opioids that I was unable to address today. Feel free to shoot me an email. Thank you for your time and congratulations for making it to the end of the day. Thank you, Doug. While we're waiting for the questions to come up, and I know that you're gonna refer us to the 85 page guideline, but as talked about earlier in the morning, we have a lot of patients that are on chronic 
opioids for back pain and neck pain. Is there any utility for methadone or buprenorphine in those patients and trying to help them get off of these like 10 or 15 years of opioid use? So it's a great question. My answer would be yes. So um, you, can, you cannot prescribe methadone maintenance for the treatment of an opioid use disorder outside of an opioid treatment program, but you can use methadone for the treatment of chronic pain. And buprenorphine can also be used uh, for treatment. So in our setting, we do, I do try to transition people from Oxycontin, morphine, you name it, over to uh, methadone or buprenorphine, and then engage in a structured taper over time. A lot of these patients, as you've mentioned, have been on these medications for a very long time. And so I always help patients understand that it, it takes a long time to taper off of these successfully. And for some patients on high doses, it could take a year or longer. And many of our patients that are on chronic opioids for pain are also using marijuana or Marinol concomitantly. Do you routinely screen for marijuana use, and does it matter if people are using marijuana? Does it affect their success of coming off of chronic opioids? So there is data that the use of cannabis can decrease the amount of opioids that you need to use and actually could be a way to help people get off opioids. Um, working in a, what's a federally qualified healthcare center, it's a little complicated since the U.S. government continues to say that cannabis is illegal and should not be recommended. But uh, there is increasing data that cannabinoids can be helpful. Synthetic cannabinoids, however, not so much. The things like K2 spice, those kinds of things, have been shown to cause psychosis and are very problematic. But the straight up marijuana, yes, can be helpful. Okay. And in fact, Jeff, just to, just to add to that, uh, in fact, a lot of the lobbying being done to not legalize marijuana in many states is actually being paid by manufacturers. They're actually behind not allowing states to legalize marijuana because they need to continue selling opioids. Yep. All right. Well, I guess we'll go right up in the break room after this. <laughs> um, can you describe the barriers for your patients, specifically or homelessness and insurance and those things? Sure. So we have a, we actually have a homeless department that goes out and does street level work. So um, my patients are predominantly HIV, hep C co-infected with severe mental illness. Um, they're in and out of the, being incarcerated. I think it'll probably be very similar to many of the patients that, that all of you deal with. So we try to have a kind of no wrong door entry into the system. So. If you come into one of our psychiatric clinics and you need help, you can get routed over uh, into our system of treatment for people with HIV and substance use disorders. Uh, the system universally tries to screen everybody in the system for HIV and hepatitis C at least once a year. And that's because our hepatitis C rates in the city are high enough to justify that. In Connecticut, having a substance use disorder is a disability and so allows people to access Medicaid, and Connecticut was an early adopter of uh, through the ACA of expanded access. And so we have lots of access to treatments for individuals with substance use disorders as a result. Well, as a non-ACA state, you basically have to have no more than two limbs remaining to get on Medicaid here in Georgia, so it's a little bit different. Um, do you prescribe benzos and buprenorphine? No. No. I think benzodiazepine, I, unless you're an addiction psychiatrist or you're giving like one tablet of a benzodiazepine, 
I would caution people never, not to use benzodiazepines, especially in people with HIV. Benzodiazepines cause enterograde amnesia that you do not develop tolerance for. Enterograde amnesia means that from the time forward, you don't remember, which is why benzodiazepines are used in sexual assault. Right? So in our patients, and if you've been following the neuroAIDS literature, we're worried about ongoing neurocognitive issues in our patients. If you're prescribing benzodiazepines, you're creating greater neurocognitive problems for your patients. Um, Long-term use of benzodiazepines may accelerate dementia in patients, and so I would caution the use of these, except you know, to get the MRI done or in very, very, very small spaces. This isn't really a question, but one of the audience members pointed out that in New Orleans, methadone clinics charge more for methadone than it costs to get heroin. I'm not sure what the question is, except maybe. So that's a bad idea, right? Yeah. So the whole point of drug treatment is to make things accessible. And yeah. so if, if it's cheaper to, it sounds like the heroin dealer probably owns the methadone yeah. clinic and is trying not to price himself out of business. And then another question, you know, there's been a lot of attention in the popular literature and press about the opioid epidemic, books like Dreamland and Chasing the Scream, I guess. I'm not familiar with that one. Are these accurate, and do they help with the public health approach, or do you have an opinion on this? I think they can be helpful. I think things that humanize uh, some of these things can be very helpful. I, I think it is very important to understand the, the people that we're taking care of are more victims than perpetrators. Um, working in the prison system with substance users and with drug dealers, um, I remember talking to one guy, I, I was just asking the question, so how do you, how do you mix drugs, how do you do all this stuff? I was, we're, we're in prison, you know, what are you talking about? We're talking about drugs. And he was talking about how they would strategically mix other drugs in for planned overdoses. So. If I'm selling drugs and you work for me and you have a drug habit, I need to kill you, but I don't want to shoot you because if I shoot you, it's homicidal to get investigated. So what I'll do is I'll just mix into your heroin bag a 50% heroin, 50% Xanax. You're not Xanax dependent. You're going to use it. You die. A small group of people die with you too, but I've gotten rid of my liability. The police won't investigate it. You're a known drug user. It also boosts sales because now people think that this is the best heroin in the community. Right? So. Talking to this guy, he completely terrified me. I was like, oh my goodness, there are people that think like this. Those are the people that I'm, I'm not sad or incarcerated, right? Um, but for most of our patients, and a lot of people I've taken care of, they're caught up in this really horrible negative environment, and they are the victims. And, and we should not be naive. I wasn't kidding when I said middle school students are targets for this. If, if your you know, seventh grader comes home and smells like vodka, you're going to know what that's like, right? And if your son says, it's, it's just mouthwash, right? You're what? Right? But if your kid comes home and smells like Percocet, anybody know what Percocet smells like on the breath? No, it's a bitter salt. It's like aspirin. It's not, you're not going to be like, oh, wow, that's Percocet, right? Drug dealers target young people because they also know there's a neurological, neurobiological basis for addiction. If you give out free Percocet to every middle school student, some of them are going to throw up and hate it. But there's going to be a group of people that love it, and they'll pursue it to their own demise. So you can never talk to your kids at too young an age about drugs, and you have to understand that there's a very large um, system 
that is geared to getting people hooked at a young age because they're looking, you know, drug dealers are looking for the next generation of business. And the guidelines, we now have the image up on the slides if you want to copy down the title of the guidelines. Dr. Lukashak. Um, I am wondering, do you think there is a benzodiazepine epidemic in this country? Um, my son goes to high school and he tells me that a lot of kids are popping Xanax and I do a lot of inter, uh, general internal medicine as well as ID and a lot of people come to me um, using Xanax uh, to go sleep or for anxiety prescribed by other internists and it seems like um, there is a lot of use of benzodiazepines but it's kind of under the radar because it's um, somehow more acceptable or... Yeah. No, it's, it's, a, it's a great point. So my answer is yes, there is a benzodiazepine epidemic. It's been going on for 50 years. Yeah. So right, the Rolling Stones used to sing about what mommy's little helper, right, which is Valium. But so there is an epidemic. Benzodiazepines are schedule four, right? So Suboxone schedule three, methadone schedule two, Oxycontin schedule two, heroin schedule one, and the DEA scheduling. So. What the world has been told is that benzodiazepines are not addictive and don't cause a problem. Uh, now kind of, there's a resurgence of interest a little bit, but only in combination with opioids. So when people look at the opioid plus benzo, that's an increased risk of overdose relative to opioids only. But there, there is not enough attention to benzodiazepines as a sole problem. I will tell you, uh, I can treat the heroin addict much easier than the person addicted to benzodiazepines. Those are some of the hardest people to treat. Part of it's because their lack of self-awareness. You know, those individuals will say, I don't, I'm not addicted, I have an anxiety disorder. When I don't take Xanax, I have a panic attack. And so to try and help them understand that, no, you don't have a panic attack, you're having benzodiazepine withdrawal, right? And so you're addicted to the substance. But they'll go to the ED, they're told they have a panic attack, they're given Xanax, it goes away. And so what's been reinforced in a lot of people is, no, 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 I don't have a problem, I can't remember my life, but... Is, is there any, uh, any app or anything that you particularly like to look, for example, to have readily available to look, look at morphine milliquart grand equivalents and stuff like this when you're seeing a patient? Just because there's so many different opioids being prescribed that sometimes doing the conversion is the easiest thing to know what to do. But, you know, it's not something that is readily available. Yeah, so it's a, it's a great point. So there, there are some conversion tables that are Im important when seeing patients, and I'll, I'll use them. Some of the things that I'm most interested in when I'm seeing a patient or patients transferred to me after doing some basic screening questions, I'm interested, so in Connecticut, we have a prescription drug monitoring program, so I'm going to look at what's the PMP. I'm going to want to know if anyone did a urine tox on this individual. I'm going to want to try and find out if this person's had any substance use treatment in the past, and I'm going to be really interested in a family history, so we didn't talk about that so much, but a lot of times when people are talking about drug-related issues with the patient, they're focusing on, did you ever have a problem with opioids? But it's also very predictive if the, you know, when you were 17 or 18, you had a drinking problem, and now you're 25 and you're gonna be prescribed an opiate, that person has a high risk of becoming a drug addict as well. So there are a lot of those pieces that become really important in trying to put together a picture to know what to do. Okay, thank you very much, Doug. Thank you. We appreciate it.
And that comes to the conclusion of our program. I would like to thank my co-chair, Michael Sag from UAB. I'd like to thank Donna and Kristen and Rob and the other people from the IES USA who organized and made sure that this meeting came off. And I'd like to thank you, all of my co-providers, for staying in the trenches and working every day to make the lives of our patients better. And we'll see you next year.